Alright, well we're back at it. This uh, session in the second half of the class, Doctrine of Sin. Today we're going to talk about the origin of sin, not original sin. That's something different. We'll talk about that but at a later session, but the origin of sin itself. Where did sin come from? Which if you start thinking about it, and if you haven't thought about it, if you have little kids, they will help you think about it. It's a very interesting question, and I, and I think important in, in different ways. So, why don't we start with prayer, and then we'll drive in. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day. Uh, we think of the fact that Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and that is why we gather every Sunday for corporate worship. We thank you that um, this is a day of victory, a day in which we remember the fact that Christ has defeated the devil, has defeated sin, has begun a work of new creation that he will finish when he returns. And so, Lord, we have joy and great hope as we gather for worship. And, Lord, we've come to honor you, to honor your Son, Jesus Christ, to bless your name, uh, to humble ourselves before you, to express our, our gratitude and love for you, for all that you are and all that you have done for us in Jesus and by the Spirit. And we pray that even as we begin our Lord's Day this morning by studying your word and the, the teaching of your word on uh, regarding Christian uh, doctrine, especially the doctrine of sin, we pray that you would illumine our minds, help us to understand and that these truths would not just stay up in our brains, but that they would sink down into our hearts and really change the way that we think, the attitude of our heart, and the way that we live as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to start with this fundamental truth, and that is that sin was originally absent from creation. There was a time when there was no sin, in the universe. That's important. Much of the confusion in our world when people think about Christianity is they think we have this big problem. How could we think that God is good when he's created a world that's so messed up? And we say, aha, but he didn't create a world that's so messed up. He created a world that was originally good and without sin or corruption. How do we know there was no sin? Well, Genesis 1.31 you see the end of creation week and it says, and God looked on everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. No more, no sin, no corruption. And then we also know that there was no sin in creation for an unspecified period of time afterwards. Right? So there are certain questions we can answer from the scriptures. There are certain questions that the scripture doesn't Give us an answer to. And one of them is, how long was it uh, after the creation week to Genesis 3 and the fall? We, we just don't know. Some unspecified period of time. Uh, we know this because Genesis chapter 2 describes events that unfolded over a period of time that, uh, in which there was still no sin. Adam was put into the garden. Eve was created. You have the first marriage, Adam naming the animals, etc., etc. And we, so we really don't know. We know that there was a period of time before sin entered into the world. We don't know how long it was. And that, that period is evident from Genesis chapter 2. Okay, 
The first sin in creation was committed by, you want to say, Adam, right? But then when you think about it, you realize, no, that can't be quite true, right? If we're talking about sin in general, that the first sin in creation was committed by Satan. And you know that because after you get to the end of Genesis 2 and you get to the beginning of Genesis 3, you see it says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So this is a creature, the serpent. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say? And then you have the temptation. So you know that there is a being in creation, a creature in the universe that is not good, that is already fallen before Adam and Eve fell into sin. And you know that because he is the one that instigated the fall, right? So, by the way, while we're not completely clear as to the relationship between the serpent and Satan, we know that in some way, Satan was the serpent. That is, Satan was controlling the serpent so that the serpent was speaking, for instance, and that the serpent was reflecting the intellect, the reason, the moral depravity of Satan. And one place you can see this is Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, in that great vision of the Apostle John, where it says that in the vision it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Okay, so... Satan is the serpent in some way. We're not exactly sure uh, how it all worked, but in some way, Satan was the serpent. And so Satan is the first creature in the universe that we see is fallen. Now, Satan's fall into sin must have taken place sometime between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, right? Because at the end of Genesis 2, everything's still good. But then when you get to the beginning of Genesis 3, something is bad. Satan has already sinned, but we're not told when and how that happened in the text of Genesis. We just know sometime between Genesis 2 and 3, Satan fell into sin. And we know that Satan is not some eternal being because he is a creature. He's even described as a creature in Genesis 3.1. So he was created along with everything else in that first week, although that doesn't, Genesis 1 doesn't tell us about the creation of angelic beings. We know he, everything was created in Genesis 1, so the angels were created, and Satan was one of those creatures, and so he fell sometime between those two chapters. It's likely, although again, we're dealing with some degree of speculation here, that Satan was the first creature to sin. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that there are passages of Scripture, which we'll look at in a section in a second, in which it indicates that Satan was the cause of the fall of other angels into sin. He's described as the prince of demons. They are called his angels, his demons. And there is reason... And especially as we'll see in Revelation 12 to indicate that he was the instigator of their fall so that he would be the the first fallen creature. 
It's also in John 8, 44, you remember that it calls Satan the father of lies. Describing a relationship between Satan and sin as if he was the progenitor. He was the, the one who committed the first sin and thereby and instigated sin after him. So that those who sin are sinning like the first sinner, in other words. Satan seems to be an angel. And after his fall into sin, he seems to have instigated a large number. And I would just throw out there, you know, one third of the other angels to join him in sinning. Why do I say that? Well, because we do have some information about this in the vision that I mentioned before, Revelation chapter 12. And if you want to turn there, let's look there for a second. Revelation 4.12, there's this great sign that appears in heaven. So John sees a vision in heaven. And in the vision is a great red dragon, and the dragon is Satan. So we read in verses 3-4, through four, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And then notice this. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. It's not uncommon in the scriptures for angels to be compared to the stars. And so this seems to be a reference to Satan instigating a larger rebellion against God among the angels and that they fell with him. And it even says a third, indicating, you know, probably not an exact number, but rather an indication that uh, at least this is a, a, mi- a part of the angelic creatures, but a minority of the angels fell with Satan. And the other angels join him in sinning. So you see verses 7 through 9, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So you notice this, here the stars that fell that were swept out of heaven are described explicitly as angels. And by the way, This is one of the reasons why we would say that Satan is an angel, a fallen angel, because the angels that fell with him are described as his angels, as if they're in a category with him. Um, Again, there's some degree of speculation as to exactly what kind of creature, but I think it's safe to say that he was an angelic creature of high order, such that he had great power you know, you think of how there are degrees of authority and power among the angels because we have angels and then we have archangels. And so, in all likelihood, Satan was an angelic creature of great power uh, and authority in God's universe, and he instigated the fall of a portion, a minority portion of other angels, and they fell with him. Interestingly, if you look at Jude chapter 6, we have another reference to the fall of angels. I believe, again, there's some degree of perhaps difficulty in interpreting this as to what exactly it's referring to, but I think one of the best interpretations of this verse is that it's referring to the original fall of angels with Satan. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Again, there's some degree of difference 
within the interpretations. If you read, if you have a study Bible, you'll probably see some of them laid out. One of them is that this is describing the fall, original fall of angels. And notice it's described as them not staying within their God-ordained positions of authority. Angels are principalities and powers in Ephesians 6. But instead they, they rebelled. They left their proper dwelling. They rebelled against God. Okay. And I'm going to sort of go through these initial slides and then stop and give you guys a chance uh, for questions. But obviously you can raise your hand and ask a question at any point. There is some question as to what Satan's fall into sin may have been like. What was the nature of it? Well, the details of Satan's fall into sin are largely mysterious. It's a hidden event to us, by and large. But the scriptures may tell us some things about it. So, for instance... Jude 6, it says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. Now, assuming that that description of the fall of certain angels would also apply to Satan in some way, perhaps his fall was in some way distinct from that, but assuming that it does apply to Satan's fall in some way, then what you see is it involved a rebellion against God's divine authority. And that I mean, in some ways, you'd have to say, well, of course, any fall into sin involves a rebellion against God's authority, just like Adam's fall. Next, it probably involved becoming puffed up with pride. Again, this is in some ways intuitive, obvious, but the scripture also indicates this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. So if we look there, it says, of elders... It says of an elder, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Okay, so when the devil was condemned, it in some way involved, it was a result of him being puffed up with conceit. Of course, if you're going to rebel against God's authority, pride and conceit has to be the cause of it. at its root. So we could say that about Satan's fall. It involved a rebellion against God's authority rooted in his becoming puffed up with pride in his heart. Then finally, this is where it gets a little bit more thought-provoking but also less certain. It may be that Satan's fall is described in two prophecies in particular, especially this one. And if so, what we're going to see is that it involved an arrogant desire to usurp God's authority, which is essentially what we've been describing, but particularly like he wanted to take God's place. So let's look at these two passages really quickly. Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. Now what you'll see is this is a an oracle that is speaking of the downfall of the king of Tyre. So, the first referent here is the king of Tyre. But when you read the oracle, it's there are elements of it that you say, well, okay, but that must be speaking of something beyond the king of Tyre, something that the king of Tyre's <laughs> demise foreshadowed or echoed. And what we would 
argue is that if this, if this is the case, what is being echoed in the king of Tyre's downfall and demise is the original downfall and demise of Satan himself. And you'll see why some argue this. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, you were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. And if you hear that word, cherub, you know of cherubim, or that's just the plural of the word cherub. What are cherubs in the Bible? Or cherubim? They're angelic beings. So, this figure is in the beginning, in Eden, is described as a, a guardian cherub, an angelic guardian. I placed you there. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire, and you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. So unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, there again, you're like, okay, well, that seems to zoom back to, you know, the king of Tyre. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And there you seem to be zooming back, right? (laughs) Uh, And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast your eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary, so I brought fire out from your midst, I consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth. So it is a description of the downfall of the king of Tyre because of his arrogance and pride over his wealth, but there it does also seem to perhaps speak beyond that, to something that was that the downfall of the king of Tyre was like, and that was the original downfall of uh, a cherub who was one time perfect, but then became arrogant and proud over his beauty and power and majesty that God had given to him and was raised up in his mind and in his heart and became corrupted, and so God cast him down. So if that is... The, a description of Satan's downfall, it gives you a little bit more information, right? Now, there is another interpretation of that. If I were to tell to you of someone who was once created perfect and was in Eden and then and had a, a role of guardianship and then fell into sin, who would you think of? Adam. Adam, right? So it could be that this is a stylized description of Adam's fall and that the king of Tyre's downfall is being compared to the original fall of man. And so it's mysterious. It's, it's somewhat, uh, because if it was Adam, you say, well, why is he called the cherub? You know, so it's mysterious. Yeah. Isn't the fall the same no matter where your position is, whether you're the lowliest of creatures or the highest of creatures of created by God, right. you're ultimately rebelling against his authority. So whether right. it was Satan or man or, right. you know, it, each one of us have that... Um, ability to to turn again right yeah i mean it's there's a sense in which the fall of any creature is going to involve these 
these same characteristics of arrogance and pride, becoming puffed up and rebelling against God's authority, and then thinking that we're kings or kings right. of our own kingdom. And, and becoming proud because of the very position, the graces that God has given you. So, there, in other words, we're not sure, you know, it is somewhat mysterious. I won't read the passage in Isaiah, you can read it for yourself, but it's less provocative in some ways because it lacks any description of Eden or a cherub or anything like that. But some people have seen that also as describing the downfall of Satan. But, you know, if this does describe Satan's fall by way of the, the picture of the downfall of the king of Tyre, then it would, again, picture Satan's downfall as an arrogant desire to raise himself up against God, to come out from God's authority, to be, in essence, a God unto himself, or even to usurp God's place. Okay, so, before we get into this, if we were to say, where did sin come from? From the perspective of just the events in history, we would say, it came from Satan first, right? And his angels first. And that it is mysterious because it's not described explicitly in the pages of Scripture. There are hints here and there that involve pride, rebelling against God. Any questions about this? Yeah, Caleb. Would, would you say that the Bible maybe not explicitly, but implies anywhere that Satan is the author or cause of sin? Or will we talk about that later? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we will get into that a little bit, but I would say, I think the Bible does indicate that Satan is himself the first sinner and also the instigator or cause. Again, from the perspective of creation, at the level of creation, and the order of events in history... Yes, Satan is the original sinner and the instigator of the fall of both angels and man. And he is the father of sin in that, in that regard. Um, yeah? Would you say that means that angels have free will then? Um, I would say that when Adam, when mankind and when angels were first created, they were created good in a state of righteousness, with natures, so they made free choices, right? Just like, just like we do today, you know, I just picked this up, I decided to do it, and I did it, and I have a free will in that regard, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't superintend every action, and that he's not sovereign over it, and so in that sense, yes, they had a freedom of will, and they, under God's sovereignty, and they freely chose to sin. And so you say, okay, well, God created them in a state of goodness. And yet, we have to say, he made them able to sin. So we're sort of boxing it in there and saying, those two things had to have been true. Where it would be possible for God to create a creature who is unable to sin. With a good nature that is unable to sin. We know that because that's going to be our condition in eternity, right? <laughs> Uh, that's our hope. It's not that God would make us like Adam in the garden where we were good but able to sin, but that he would make us better than that, that he would remake us with natures that are good and unable to sin. He would never sin. So we'll, we'll get, we're jumping the gun a little bit, but 
Any other questions about Satan and his fall and the origin of sin being from Satan? Yeah. Yeah, so when we, like in the, the Revelation passage that was cited earlier, it says that Satan is in chains under darkness. Is that like a future event or is that like, like where, because sometimes he's in right. chains and sometimes he's like a prowling lion and Job is active, like, it, and I've, some people have said like Satan is an accuser, it's like a position and not a person. Mm-hmm. What, how would you respond to that? So just to clarify, the, the description of Satan being, of, of angels being held in chains is actually in Jude 6. And that's where the understanding of what that passage means, some people see it as a description of certain fallen angels, and they tie it back to Genesis 6. In other words, there were some angels that when they fell, they committed such atrocious acts that God immediately threw them into hell until the judgment day, right? But there are other demons that are on the loose, as it were. Or, some people interpret that as referring to just the condition of all fallen angels. That there's a sense in which they're free to roam the earth and wreak havoc. But there's also a sense in which they're bound, kept within certain bounds. And if you look at the Revelation 12, it does say that they, upon the, the child born to the woman when he was taken up into heaven... Satan and his angels were warred and they were cast down to earth. And there is a sense of like they were restricted in some way, awaiting their doom and their rages on the earth. But they're not able to, they don't have the same access that they had before. And so perhaps that imagery of being contained, bound in some way. Jesus described him, he said that he is like the one who comes and binds the strong man and plunders his house. That in some way, Satan was bound, restricted in some way. He couldn't operate in the same way that he did before the coming of Christ. And so, that could be it. There, it's some degree of mystery about it. Yeah, Katrin. Isn't sin itself a chain that binds us that when we are... Um, rebelling against God and when we are in sin we are bound we do right. not have the freedom that we had so it could be figuratively meaning they really have chains on them or it could just be as you're stating that they're bound because sin blinds us and, and it, it, it limits us from being able to see and understand and, and respond right. well there is certainly a sense in which demons like all sinners like all uh, us human sinners are are enslaved to their corrupt desires and their wicked natures but in the Jude 6 passage it does seem to indicate some kind of external restraint uh, an act of judgment by which God restrained the demons and thank God right <laughs> that Satan is not able to do whatever he desires right so um, exactly, I mean, this gets in, Marcus, to the interpretation of Revelation 20 and what it means that he's cast into the abyss. And But there, I think we could all agree that in some way, something happened to Satan at the death and resurrection of Christ, which he was defeated, restricted, bound, restrained in, in a way that wasn't the case prior to. And of course, all throughout history, he's been restricted by God in certain ways. He could never do anything that God did not allow him to do. Hence, Job 1, right? He had to get permission from God to afflict Job. Okay, we're 
We're, those are great questions. We're getting a little off track here, so let's, let's get back here now to the fall of man. So you have the fall of Satan, which was first, and then you have the fall of man. So after his own fall, Satan then instigated the fall of the first man, Adam, into sin. And let's go ahead and read this passage, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. If someone wouldn't mind reading that, it would just to bring fresh to our minds the, the fall of man. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sucked the leaves together and made themselves more clogs. Isn't it incredible? It's a testimony to its authenticity, the way the Bible describes these momentous events in history in such simple and straightforward ways. It's like those four words in the Gospels, and they crucified him, right? Like, wow, you know. Here, and she gave some to her husband and who was with her, and he ate. You know, one of the most momentous acts, just described in a straightforward way. But you see Satan there, how he instigates the fall of the first man. It's outrageous what you see happening here, but we're so used to it that it doesn't pop the way that it would if you had never been exposed to this story before. That All of a sudden, in God's good creation, is an enemy, an opponent who, who deceives his special creatures, man made in his image, and lies to them and calls into question God's character and tells them that God really won't do what he said he would do and paints God as if he's restraining them, holding them back from something better and uh, all of these things. And so you see that at the instigation of Satan, the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve, fall into sin. The instigation of Satan directly to the woman and then indirectly by way of the woman to the man. So Satan used deception. He's called a deceiver used deception to then tempt the first woman, Eve, to sin. She, in turn, tempted Adam to do the same. And it seems that there was, in, there was cunning, there was intentionality in Satan uh, going to the woman first and deceiving her and that she would become the instrument through which Adam was himself uh, tempted. And so, and the Bible, I'm... I, put some New Testament references there where it reflects back upon that. Of course, there were many sins involved in this process of Adam doing this, right? In fact, you could say that he broke all the two great commandments and he broke all the ten commandments when he broke this one command, right? Um, And there's a sense in which you could say that sin first appeared in the hearts of Adam and Eve prior to the act of eating the apple. But what we see in Scripture is that it was his transgression of God's command. And notice, Adam's, not Eve's, 
not Satan's sin. It was Adam's transgression of this one command. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She gave some to her husband and he ate. So it was his explicit transgression or breaking or violating of the one command God had given him. It was that act on the part of Adam which led to guilt and corruption being passed down to all mankind. So let's just go to Romans 12, uh, 5, verse 12, and let's remember what it says here. First in verse 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, and you know that when it says man here, it's not talking about Eve. Because in uh, two verses later it says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And so we know that the man here is Adam. And then you get down to verses 15 through 17 and you see an unpacking of it in greater degree. For the, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more, die, uh, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, so you see it repeatedly there. Why are men subject to death? Why are men sinners? Why are they condemned? Because of the one man's transgression, his trespass, his violation of the command of God. And that one man is Adam. So it was Adam's sin that led to all men being becoming guilty and subject to the penalty of death. So they inherit his guilt and his corruption. And then we could also add that all creation was subjected to corruption as a result of Adam's sin. And you see that if you go forward a bit in Romans to Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So, all the way until the present, the creation itself has been subjected to futility, is in bondage to corruption. This is why there are thorns and thistles. This is why there are earthquakes and tsunamis. This is why. So people say, how could God be good and allow these things to happen? And you go, you don't understand. <laughs> These are things are the result of the fall. They're our fault, right? They're God's judgment upon the world in a general way. It's not to say that, you know, the people of Florida are especially bad because God let a hurricane come. But all these things are the result of Adam's sin. And we share in his guilt and punishment because he was our representative head. And... So what Paul is describing here is nothing other than Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, the curse made upon Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. The transgression. Cursed is the ground, the earth, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So, the very earth itself, the ground, the, the, the world, is subjected to corruption, thorns and thistles and futility, and all the other signs of corruption because of Adam's sin. So, where does human sin come from? Well, it was instigated by the temptation and the deception of Satan, but it originated with the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and that's what led to the fall of not only the human race into corruption and guilt, in other words, we're all born guilty sinners, and the corruption of creation itself, because he was our representative head before God. Okay, now, you ask then, So where did sin come from? Well, sin in general came from the free choice of Satan. Free, not as in completely autonomous freedom, so that even God was sitting there going, what's going to happen with Satan? No, he, he foreknew all these things. He foreordained everything that came to pass because he's God. He knows the end from the beginning because he planned it. So not not autonomous freedom, but the freedom that he had to be able, he was made able to sin. So he chose to sin, and that's where sin originally came from, from Satan. Human sin came from the free choice of Adam and Eve in their state of righteousness, where they too were able to sin, again, under God's sovereignty. And it was in response to Satan's temptation. So Satan didn't commit the first human sin. He wasn't a human, right? But he instigated it. The first human sin was Eve and then Adam. And it was Adam's sin that led to the fall of creation. Okay. This leads us to some of the more sticky issues involving this. We ask, is God the author of sin? Well, here's some things we need to say about this. First, God created Satan, Adam, and Eve in a state of righteousness. He didn't create them sinners. He didn't create sin. Again, it goes back to what we were saying before. Sin isn't a thing that is there in the universe, right? Sin is a privation, a loss of a state of righteousness. It is a perversion of what was good. And that privation, that loss of a state of righteousness, then produces in creatures an inclination toward wickedness. It is a corruption of what is good. You remember that picture I had of a flower that was all wilted and turned in, right? That's how we should understand sin. Not like a substance out there that God made and then it infected us. It's a loss of the state of righteousness. So God created Satan, Adam, Eve in a state of righteousness. If Ezekiel 28 is describing the sin of Satan, you, you saw that. It says like, you were created with beauty and with perfect. And man was the same way. But they were created with the ability to sin. So it's not as if God 
you know, sin snuck up on God and caught him by surprise and now he had to change his whole plan for the universe. No, he created them. Not sinful. He didn't create sin. He's not the creator of sin. But he created them able to sin with the ability to sin. We know that because they sin. (laughs) We also could say that God ordained the fall of both Satan and Adam and Eve into sin. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, let me just show you a couple simple places. Okay, Ephesians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, if you go on to verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, you, you go on, you see the language of choosing before the foundation of the world, predestining, and all of this is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 11. God's sovereign plan includes the choice to save some before they ever existed, before he even created the world. Now, why would that have implication upon whether God ordained the fall of Satan and Adam? What does that tell us? If he chose us before he ever created. He had a plan. (laughs) That in order to redeem, then there had to be a fall in state. (laughs) So even before he created... He's got this plan. He's working all things after the counsel of his will. So part of his plan must have been that Satan sinned. He tempts Adam and Eve to sin. Humanity falls and then he chooses out of that fallen race to redeem some so that he might glorify his grace. Now I know that there's a lot of things that we naturally kick against in that, right? And I understand that. But nevertheless, I don't see how we get around it. And, and what would be the alternative? Again, it's out of his hands. that God created the universe and he didn't foresee that sin would occur, right? I mean, even if you want to say, well, he just saw that it would happen, but he didn't plan it. I don't even understand what that means. <laughs> how, how can he foresee something without it planning that? It, is there some other force out there in the universe that determine these things, and he just saw what that force determined. No. Everything is coming forth from God. The tension that that brings in, right, is, well, but he planned sin. Wouldn't that indicate some kind of moral defect in him? Absolutely not. The responsibility for sin lies in who? Satan. Adam. So, this gets to this mystery. God can ordain something to occur, plan it to occur, without being responsible morally for the actions that he ordains. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and we could add in there angelic responsibility. Isn't that a way for him to be able to choose the very best for his create for the end of creation and when we're all with him, hopefully. Right. Well, it gave him that way to choose the very best human beings. Well, and I would say that he didn't even choose the very best human beings. He chose a bunch of 
sinners that are just, like he says in Ephesians 2, like the rest of mankind, right? There weren't any sinners. Exactly. I think that's what you're getting at. Okay, there's a bunch of sinners, but I'm going to pick out that one, that one, that, because they're all the Right. So you could say, you could say, well, God, if I was in charge, I never would have had sin happen in the first place. Isn't, wouldn't that have been better? And you say, well, if there's no sin, there's no redemption, there's no cross, there's no all the glory that comes from that. So, while we might struggle to wrap our minds around this, nevertheless, that, I think what you're getting at is getting to the point that he ordained sin so that he, because he was ordaining redemption mm-hmm. and it was all to his glory. I was just going to say that it's, I don't think that people really, when people oppose the idea that God could have or both ordained sin and not been fault for it and also choose who he saves and choose not to save others, they, and you touched on this, but they lose sight of God's sovereignty because if that's really the case and God couldn't, you know, dictate that sin would or wouldn't happen here and couldn't dictate who is saved, if he can't control that, which is the most important aspect of all of life, why should we assume he can control anything, right? If you tell me that uh, God doesn't get to choose who he saves, then there's no way for you to also tell me he's got control over anything else. And then, yeah, Satan caused my family member to die, and it was outside of God's control. God couldn't have stopped my miscarriage, or he couldn't have prevented this from happening to my friend. Mm-hmm. Everything about God's sovereignty falls apart if he can't control salvation. Yeah, it, it, there, that's why there is a movement in evangelicalism today, at least they would call themselves evangelical, called open theism, where in order to protect, in their mind, to protect the character of God, they deny that he really knows what's going to happen. <laughs> now, he's a really good chess player, and he is excellent at responding to what people do and he's powerful enough to work it all to his plan but he can't really know otherwise people wouldn't truly be free to choose and if he does know then that means he must be responsible for it and and we're just saying no that's, that's certainly not what the bible says he knows he plans but he's not responsible for the moral evil now he is responsible for all the good right just to add this in there, there's an interesting text in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Almost as an aside, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5.21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Now, just as an aside, he throws in there, he could have said holy angels, right? As opposed to, he's talking, so he's referring to the What we would typically just say is angels as opposed to demons, right? Holy angels versus fallen angels. But he calls them elect angels. What does that indicate? Well, it indicates that when Satan fell and brought, instigated the fall of other angels, yeah, God was in control of that too. The reason why some angels did not fall is because God had chosen them to remain holy. Wow. I mean... But you see, the Bible does not blink at speaking this way. Um, and, and by the way, what's the difference between humans falling into sin? You know, the angels, when their fall didn't involve all the angels, right? With humanity, all humanity falls. With the angels, there was only some that fell and some that didn't. 
But the difference is there's no redemption with us. We all fell in Adam, and then God chose to save some. And it shows you, it highlights grace, doesn't it? Because the angels are not, you know, the fact that there's no redemption for them is not unfair. No, no, it's the very definition of fair. They get justice. It's just that we get mercy. Okay. So God is in no way responsible for the first sin or any other sin. Let me just give you some passages. You know, you say, well, how can you say? You say God planned the first sin, but then you say he's not responsible for it. How can you say that? Because the Bible says it, right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And in the context, it becomes very clear that darkness is an imagery for wickedness, whereas light is an imagery for righteousness because he talks about if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, right? So God, there's no darkness in him, no moral evil, no lie. He's perfect. Matthew 5.48, it's, it's where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James chapter 1, you guys are familiar with this, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we want to say, well, God, you're in control of all of it. You're in control. You could prevent me from sinning if you wanted. Therefore, it's not really my fault, is it? Let no one say such a thing. God cannot be tempted with evil. He does not tempt anyone. The one responsible for the evil that we commit is ourselves. It's our own desires, right? Isaiah chapter 6, the angels flying around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is no evil in God. No. So he does ordain the fall. He plans it but he is in no way responsible for it. Rather, it's those who commit the sin, the evil, those in whom evil is found in their hearts and who act upon it. They're responsible, right? How do you know? Well, you get to the end of the Bible and what happens? Every human being is judged for what they did in the body. And the angels too, and Satan himself. But here's the real brain blower. Why did God ordain sin? (laughs) This question presses the boundaries of what God has permitted us to know. But there are some things we can say from Scripture. Number one, we can say that God always does what is best. That is, perfect goodness. Always does what is best. In the best possible way. Perfect wisdom. I just put in there Romans 11, 33-36. That's, Oh, the depths of the wisdom and riches and knowledge of God, right? Who can tell him what to do? Who can inform him? Who can add to his wisdom? His wisdom is perfect. His goodness is perfect. So we can say that it was the course of perfect goodness and perfect wisdom that he ordained sin. You say, why did God ordain sin? I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, it's because you're not as wise and as good as God is. (laughs) We can also say that God ordains evil for good purposes, right? Genesis 50, 20. Do you guys remember that verse? Joseph and his brothers. 
what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God planned that they would do that. But he, his plan was for a good purpose, while their plan was for evil purposes. They were responsible for the evil they did, but God was responsible for the good that he planned and brought about through it, right? And if you don't like that one, of course, you could go to the climactic event of redemptive history, or a climactic event. This Jesus, Acts 2.23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The people that crucified and killed Jesus were acting wickedly, lawlessly. They were committing sin for which they will be held accountable by God. And yet, it was all planned by God, foreknown and planned by Him. Definite plan and foreknowledge. So, He ordains, plans evil to occur for His good purposes, and yet the people that do it are held responsible for it. You remember Jesus saying about Judas? That it must happen that he comes, but woe to the one who does it, right? That's it. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. We can also say that God, you say, well, what is God's ultimate purpose? He better explain himself to me. (laughs) What is God's ultimate purpose in ordaining sin? Okay, well, I don't deign to look into the mind of God and tell you all of his, his reasons. And he doesn't have to explain himself to us. In fact, he says, look, my ways are higher than your ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. And the secret things belong to me. So all you can know is what I tell you. I don't have to explain myself to you. And we have to get that through our mind, right? Because we we love to put God up into the dock, into the witness stand and interrogate him. As if somehow he was accountable to us, right? It is ridiculous. It is arrogance to the highest degree to treat God that way. However, we can say some things about his plan and purpose. What was his purpose in ordaining sin? Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, here's the purpose, for all things, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So one thing we know is he ordained sin to magnify his glory. And you say, well, how would his glory be magnified through even allowing sin to occur and having to judge it? You know, while we do what Paul says earlier in Romans 9, put our hand over our mouth and say, we don't have the right to speak to the potter. Yet he says to us in these verses, Romans 9, 22-24, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Do you see what he's saying? Well, one thing that you can say about his purpose is that His purpose in all things was to display His glory, which is praiseworthy. He allowed sin in order to display His wrath and to make His power known in His judgment of it. And at the same time, 
He allowed sin in order to display His mercy by not judging others, but choosing them to be the recipients of His mercy. And you say, I don't understand how that could be. It doesn't make sense to me. I wouldn't do it that way. I'm not claiming to be able to unravel all of your, all of my wonderings. But it is what the Scripture says. Here's what St. Augustine said. I, th- I found it helpful. God allowed sin because He, quote, judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit evil to exist. I mean, quite simply, that just that's a summary of what we've been seeing from the Scripture. In His wisdom and His goodness, He judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit evil to exist. It's just a simple fact. If it was better to not permit evil to exist, He would have done that. Because He always does what is best. So the fact that He allowed evil to exist goes, well, He must have known in His perfect wisdom and goodness that this was the better course. We shouldn't expect to fully understand this matter. Isaiah 55. Let me just read these verses and we'll end here. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. You know, this is where a lot of our problems are. We think about God in a human way. We, we think that He should be like us, that He should do things the way that we would. We use our puny judgments to evaluate God, and He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And thank goodness, by the way, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so we say with David in Psalm 131, Lord, I do not occupy myself with things too marvelous, too wonderful for me. But like a weaned child, I just, I rest in you. I say, you know what's best, Lord. I I, I don't even want to, I would never want to run the universe. Thank goodness that you are, and I'm not going to, question the way that you do it. And by the way, has He given us ample reason to see His goodness? The cross. It's not like He was cavalier about evil. He entered into His own creation in the person of the Son, our God. He bore the curse for us. Our sins were laid upon Him and He defeated evil. God forbid that we would ever turn around and question His goodness, His wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time just reflecting upon this difficult subject, this subject about which we can only say certain things and must leave other things to the realm of mystery. But we thank you for what you have revealed, that you have told us exactly what we need to know. Your word is sufficient to equip us for every good work. Give us that humility of mind to think about ourselves with a proper lowliness of mind as fallen human beings and help us to accept and affirm as right and good all that the scripture says of these things. We are humbled, Lord, to think that humanity is the source of human sin. Satan is the source of sin in the universe. And yet you are sovereign over it all and are bringing infinite good out of such terrible evil. And we trust that. 
Help us to trust that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.